This morning, we get to uh, have the opportunity to uh, uh, hear uh, from Chad Anderson in terms of uh, uh, an opportunity to preach for us. And so Chad has been a member of this church for a number of years, has been a faithful servant here. He's a leader of one of our life groups. Uh, he has also, over the last past couple of years, been part of our PLI class. That's our Pastors and Leaders Institute, if you're not familiar with that. And really, that's just a program that's designed to help identify and develop and train future leaders and pastors uh, within the church. And so uh, we've, we've uh, invited Chad to be able to come and uh, preach the word for us this morning. And so in just a minute, I'm going to invite him up here. But uh, before we get there, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We will be back in the book in the Gospel of Luke next week. Uh, but uh, this week, Chad is going to be preaching for us from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So if you would please stand together as we give attention to the reading of God's word this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Is that right? <laughs> well, Happy New Year. Uh, so it's a great uh, privilege to be able to stand up here this morning uh, with all of you and preach God's word. I just uh, want to thank you all for coming, you know, especially for those of you who were late, up late last night celebrating. Um, is that feedback? What's happening? <laughs> um, yeah, I just hope you guys all had a great time, a celebration with friends and family. How many of you made any New Year's resolutions? Anybody? A few? How many of you just like hate New Year's resolutions? Okay. All right. So I've made my share of New Year's resolutions over the years, and I'd like to say that I've been successful at keeping every single one of them, but let's be honest. Like the vest? What's that? Push it to my face. Okay. Is that better? Okay, good. <laughs> so, where was I? So like the vast majority of people that good? I fail to keep almost every single resolution that I make. 
Did you know that according to a study done in 2016, after one week, 25% of people have already failed at the resolutions. By the end of the year, only 9% of people feel like they've been successful. Help me out, bud. I was the last one to wear this, which is probably good. why it's all jacked up. Is that better? Okay, good. Whew. Man. All right. So I became curious about where this tradition came from. And I found out that this is a tradition that's been going on for almost 4,000 years. Like it started with the ancient Babylonians and eventually it was adopted by the Romans. And they're the ones who made January 1st the start of the new year. So this is a human tradition that's been going on for a very long time. It made me wonder, what is it about this tradition that has made it endure for so long, despite the fact that we all tend to fail to keep those resolutions? I think the fact that this tradition has endured for thousands of years actually tells us something very significant about human nature. Most people have enough self-awareness to realize that they aren't perfect. They realize that there are things that they would like to change about themselves, and if they just try hard enough, they can do it. You see, we as humans have a strong sense of self-autonomy. This idea that we are the authors of our own destiny. Now, we can do anything we want to do or be anything we want to be. All we have to do is just try, and we can do it. You know, if something needs to change about ourselves, we just need to choose to change it. And even though when you think about it, January 1st is really just an arbitrary date, it does, there's this cultural significance of, of newness, that you know, something new is about to start. And that idea of newness creates an atmosphere of hope and the possibility for change. So we get a fresh start, and we're filled with this hope in our own ability to make this new year better than the last. So like I said, this mindset of self-autonomy, it's pervasive within humanity. And even Christians have a tendency to bring it into their understanding of the scriptures, the gospels, and particularly into the understanding of salvation. And I've heard it many times in different Christian circles when speaking about salvation, this idea that, sure, you know, God does his part, but we also need to do our part. Maybe you've heard the common salvation analogy. It goes something like this. So there's, salvation is like a lost man, and he's out at sea, and he's drowning, right? And he's about to go down for the last time. And God, he throws a life preserver to the man. You know, life preserver is the gospel. God's there. He's going to do 99% of the work. And all the man has to do is just reach out and hold on to that life preserver, and he'll be saved. But there's a problem with this analogy and this self-autonomous mindset that we all either consciously or unconsciously tend to default to. In order to see the problem with this mindset, we must have a clear understanding of the salvation that God provides for us. And the verses we're going through today, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10, are going to help us gain that understanding. This letter, which Paul wrote to the Ephesians, is a bit different than most of his other letters. While Paul typically addresses specific uh, problems or false teachings that the church he's writing to is going through, uh, in the book of Ephesians, it appears to be a general letter 
meant to be read and distributed to all the Gentile Christians. And in this letter, he lays down several foundational principles of the faith in order to ground, shape, and even challenge his readers. In verse 17 of chapter 1, we see that Paul prays that God the Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul wants his readers to have a proper understanding of what it is that God has done for them. And in our text today, Paul succinctly unpacks the principles of our salvation. He's going to tell us three things. First, he's going to tell, let us know who we were before Christ. Next, he'll reveal what God did for us. And finally, he'll tell us how we should respond. So first, Paul understands that we need to know who we were. We need to know the condition from which we're being saved. So Paul dives right in to tell his, his uh, readers in verse 1, And you were dead. Paul is very deliberate with his choice of words here. He doesn't say, and you were sick or weak or disabled in some way. No, he says, and you were dead. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have spent much time around dead people. When I was going to school, I studied anatomy, and I got to spend an entire year in a lab dissecting dead people. And something to take away from that is the understanding that Dead people can't do anything. There's a complete inability of them to act in any way. So Paul continues. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Well, now I just said that a dead person can't do anything. And now a dead person's walking. What's going on here? So Paul is describing their spiritual state. Though they were alive according to the flesh, they were spiritually dead. And this is the natural condition of all people born into this world beginning back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. We read in Genesis that God gives Adam a warning about what would happen if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But what do we do with the fact that Adam and Eve didn't immediately die? Was God wrong? No. Scripture is abundantly clear that although Adam continued to walk in the world, he had moved from a state of spiritual life where he walked in communion with God and passed into a state of spiritual death. And eventually, physical death would come as well. So the text says, you once walked in trespasses and sins. The word walk here is a common term the Bible uses to characterize the way in which one lives. They had a lifestyle of sin. And Paul continues on to explain what this lifestyle is marked by. He says, starting in the middle of verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there's a couple of important things to point out here. You know, Paul is addressing Gentile Christians, and he starts by saying, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But then we see a shift in pronouns occur in verse 3, when he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So the spiritual state 
that Paul is describing here is applicable to everyone, to Gentiles, to Jews, and as he points out at the end of verse 3, to the rest of mankind as well. But also notice that he is using the past tense to describe them. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So as we continue to work through these verses, I want you to remember that if you believe in Christ and consider him to be your Lord and Savior, this section describes who you were, not who you are now. But it is also an accurate description of the spiritual state of anybody who is not currently in Christ Jesus. I also want to point out that this section describes the enemy that we Christians still face in our battle with sin and what we will continue to fight against until Christ comes again. One of the main differences now is that we are no longer dead. We can do something about it. So notice here in these verses, there are three factors which help us to clarify what is involved in the state of spiritual deadness. First, there is the following the course of this world. Every society has certain attitudes, habits, beliefs, and preferences, and these exert powerful influences on the individual. We've all experienced the constant bombardment of the world's messages. Right? They come across in the TV shows, the movies we watch, in the constant ads we see on the internet. You know, they're pretty obvious in the news articles we read or the political arguments of our day, or even through the schools that we send our kids to. It's easy for us to see the blatant ways that the world tries to steer us away from God. You know, one obvious way is in the 1960s, there was the sexual revolution. And ever since then, we've lived in an increasingly hypersexualized world where now it's considered normal to view pornography. Homosexuality must be celebrated, and you are considered weird if you want to get to know someone before getting intimate with them, let alone waiting for the proper God-ordained place for that in marriage. But what about the subtle messages that we get? Do you pick up on the little things that slowly erode our idea of what it means to be godly men and women? An example of this, if anybody watches much TV, there's a common sitcom trope that there's this dad who is lazy, but he's an often lovable idiot. And his main goal in life is to sit around all day in his underwear watching TV. But then there's the smart and beautiful mom who's obviously in charge and keeps the family together. There are ideas being conveyed about marriage and men and women's roles and how the family should function that are in many ways in conflict with the biblical ideal. And since these messages are so subtle, if we don't pay attention, we can easily internalize these values without even realizing it. And this ties into the next part of the text, which says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. It is Satan himself that masterminds the course of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul refers to Satan as the god of this world. The Bible presents us with a dichotomy. We either recognize God as God or Satan is a God, whether or not we recognize him as such or not. So your family, your friends, your neighbors, if you aren't in Christ, they are being influenced and directed by the prince of the power of the air. Many of us have loved ones who have not accepted Christ as their savior. And it can make us be difficult, even make us feel uncomfortable to think that this person whom I love 
is following Satan. I think this discomfort may come from an incomplete view of how the devil works in the world. Right? We often think of you know, war and violence and, and the big evils of the world as what Satan's influence produces. And while that's true, I think it again neglects the subtleties of his work. Remember in the Gospels, when Jesus was in the wilderness and going through 40 days of being tempted, what does the devil use to tempt Jesus? Scripture. He will speak in half-truths in order to deceive. Satan would be perfectly happy if our entire society were good and moral in a humanistic sense. He doesn't care if you're going to church. He doesn't care if you worship. As long as you're putting your trust in something other than Christ, he's fine with it. Remember how Jesus responds to the Pharisees. In the first century AD, the Pharisees were the prime example of morality and living righteously from a human point of view. They are the epitome of a person who believes they're right with God because of what they do. And yet, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So, the prince of the power of the air is working through the sons of disobedience. And who are these sons? Anybody who doesn't follow Christ. They could be the most upstanding citizen, doing more charity work than anyone else, be nice to everyone around them. But if they reject Christ, they are a son of disobedience. And the third thing Paul mentions as marking spiritual deadness is that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. To be dead to God is to live for ourselves. A person who is walking in their sins and trespasses is being influenced by the world, the course of which is directed by Satan, and the person chooses to sin because they want to. That is what they desire. And all this together is what makes them, as Paul says, by nature, children of wrath. The simple meaning of this phrase is that all people, every single person on the earth, is deserving of the wrath of God. This was you without Christ. This is everybody in the world who doesn't call Christ their Lord and Savior. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe in your heart that without Christ, this was your spiritual state? Because in order to grasp the true magnificence and beauty and awesomeness of God's gift to you, you've got to start here. So that's the bad news. By nature, we are in bondage to our lifestyle sin, our fleshly desires following this evil world being directed by the prince of the power of the air. But here in verse 4, Paul starts to unpack the good news. And it starts with two simple words, but God. So notice the contrast to verse 1, which started, and you. Right? The and you section tells us everything that we bring to the table in our salvation. And but God begins to tell us what God did for us. So read with me at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I love that part right at the end of verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Like, it almost seems out of place. If you were to take that out and put the other sentences together, 
it would actually flow a little bit better. But that, that phrase there, it's almost like the summation of this entire passage. By grace, you have been saved. And I can't, can't help but think that Paul is just so excited to get to his main point here that he just has to interject it right here, even though he's going to expand upon it once we get to, to verse 8. But now we see the reason in these verses why God acted. God isn't just merciful. He's rich in mercy. He has an overabundance of mercy. And God saved us because of his great love for us. Then Paul adds the clincher. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. Paul again is reminding us here that there is nothing in us that deserved God's action. Remember, we were enemies of God. By nature, children of wrath. God isn't looking down on us thinking, oh, look at that guy. Look at that amazing act of charity that he just did. I think I'll save him. No, it has nothing to do with us and absolutely everything to do with his mercy and love. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive. This is what it means to be born again. Remember back in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Jesus tells him in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in order to even see the kingdom of God, one must be born again. Many of us, or sorry, when a little later in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, many of us want to be able to boil down salvation to a formula. You know, what are the steps that I need to take in order to be right with God? You know, look at the Pharisees, look at the Roman Catholics, look at basically any other religion out there, and there's this idea that we can work out our own salvation. We can do things in our own power to make us right with God. But to be born again is something that God does for us when we are spiritually dead. We are not causing ourselves to be born again, to be made alive. Dead things cannot choose to live. Romans 4.17 says that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is exactly what he has done in regard to our spiritual life. We can sometimes have an incomplete view of what God has done for us in Christ. And we tend to think of salvation as just God forgiving us of our sins. And while that's true, that God does forgive our sins, he does wipe away our debt so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Salvation is so much more than that. If we begin to think of salvation as just the forgiveness of sins, that can lead us to think and act like we are in this morally neutral ground where we are no longer condemned, but now it is up to us to obey God and do good things in order to stay in God's good graces. Have you ever been in that spot? Maybe you've fallen out of the habit of reading your Bible or praying regularly. Or maybe you've consistently failed to share the gospel with that coworker of yours like you've been meaning to. And so we feel guilt and begin to think of God as a disapproving father who is disappointed in us. And when our, then our tendency is to think that we have to work extra hard to earn God's favor back. We fall back into our self-autonomous mindset. But think about this. Before you believed, before you ever came into existence, God knew everything about you. He knows everything you've done. 
every sin you've committed and every sin you're going to commit. And with this knowledge, he still chose to make you alive with Christ. It's important that we don't lose sight of that. So what God does for us is not just the forgiveness of sins, but something so much greater. I want you to notice here how Paul describes what God does for us when he causes us to be born again. Look at how this being made alive works. He made us alive with Christ through our union with him. We are not simply made alive by God and then left to our own devices, but we are joined with Christ. We live because he lived. We are raised because Christ was raised. We are glorified because Christ was glorified. And then notice, too, how all the actions of God mentioned here in verses 5 and 6 are in the past tense. These are things that have already happened and are now present realities for a Christian. We've been made alive, we've been raised up, and we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What does it mean that we are currently, at this very moment, seated with Christ, in the heavenly places. This is actually parallel language to what Paul uses in chapter 1 when he's describing what God the Father has done for Christ. In verse 20 we read, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Did you catch that? Christ is seated far above all rule and authority and power, and we are seated with him. It's not just that God has forgiven our sins, but that God has freed us from the bondage of sin. When we were dead, we walked in sin. We were subject to the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air and our own fleshly desires. But God has made us alive. He raised us up and seated us with Christ above all rule and authority. That means that we are above the prince of the power of the air. We are above Satan. We don't have to succumb to his lies and temptations. And why did God do all this for us? Verse 7, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why has God saved you? For his glory. All believers will serve as a demonstration of God's extraordinary grace. God's riches are displayed in his kindness to us. And what's amazing about that is that the recipients of God's generosity were at one time enemies of God and liable to his wrath. So, to recap, we've seen how we were dead in our sins, in bondage to the world, to Satan and our own fleshly desires, and how despite nothing worthy found in us, but because of God's mercy and love, he made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with Christ. How are we to respond to such an amazing act of love and grace? Verses 8 through 10 will tell us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now our first response should be not to boast. We should be full of humility. And why? Because there's nothing in ourselves in which to boast. The entire salvation process, even our faith, is a gift from God. Some people have difficulties with this part. But think about it for a second. If there are two people 
who experience the exact same things in life. They hear the exact same sermons and everything is exactly the same. But one of them comes to faith and the other does not. What is the difference? If you look at salvation in light of the life preserver analogy, the difference is that one of them did something of their own accord. They grabbed hold of the life preserver and held on. They did their part. But then they have a reason to boast because the only difference between them and the other person was something that they did in and of themselves. But remember verse 1, and you were dead. A more accurate analogy that is more in line with the text would be that they are dead at the bottom of the ocean. And God, with his love and mercy, reaches down, picks them up, makes them alive, and puts them on the dry ground. And this is so important to grasp this idea because it has huge ramifications. If faith were something that arose within us as opposed to a gift imparted to us from God, then there most certainly would be some room for boasting. If this were the case, then if someone were to ask you, why are you in Christ? Why are you saved? Why have you been adopted as a child of God? Why do you deserve to go to heaven? Then you could say, because I believed. You see, the emphasis is put on what you did, but there is no room for boasting. The answer to all those questions should be, by the grace of God alone. Many years ago, I had a friend, we'll call him Sam. He was going through a really rough time. He was depressed, his marriage was falling apart, and I wanted so desperately to be able to help him out, to convince him to fight for his marriage. We would stay up late, I would talk to him, and I would tell him all the biblical reasons why he should stay with his wife. I believed at the time that he was a Christian, but through the course of our conversations, I realized that he actually, he really didn't believe after several weeks, he ended up divorcing his wife, and he moved out of state in order to pursue his career and his own happiness. And I remember feelings of so incredibly frustrated and annoyed at him. If only he viewed the world that I did, if only he had had faith in Christ, he could have saved his marriage. I'm sure most of us have someone in our lives, whether a close friend or family member, who is like this. They reject God, follow the ways of the world, and consistently commit what you would consider ungodly mistakes. The tendency can be to look at them with disapproval and even at times disgust and think, why can't you just have faith in Christ? But if we truly believe in our hearts what Paul is saying here, we realize that even our faith is a gift from God. So when we encounter people like my friend, even though we can rightfully disagree with the actions that they are taking, we should respond with nothing but compassion for them. Because we know that if it wasn't for the grace of God towards us, we could be in the same boat. So our first response is not to boast, to be humble. We see in verse 10 here that our second response to this gospel message is obedience. A problem I had when I first came to Christ, and I think a lot of Christians in America have the same problem, is compartmentalizing. I would go to church on Sundays and think that I was good. You know, that was God's section of my life, and the rest of the week was mine. And then I would stumble upon verses like this, and I would think, oh, I need to be doing some more good works, you know? Maybe I'll give more money to the church, or maybe I'll help friends move when they need it. 
And you can find preachers out there who will tell you in a sermon, Paul here says that we were made for good works. So here is a list of good works for you to do. And you know what? A lot of people like those types of sermons because it feeds into our self-autonomous mindset that we can earn our righteousness through works. Just tell me what I need to do to stay in God's good graces, and I'll do that. But let's consider this verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. First, let's look at that term good works. One commentator said this about the term. Good works is a general and comprehensive expression for godly behavior. So we were made alive, born again, created in Christ Jesus for godly behavior. And then the last phrase says that we should walk in them. Does that sound familiar? This is actually referring back, it's connecting back to verse 2. When Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Remember how that phrase back in verse 2 denoted a lifestyle. Our lifestyle was marked by sin. The same meaning of that word is employed here. Our lifestyle should be that which is marked by godly behavior. Obedience to God's word. And the reason we are obedient, the reason that we walk in these good works is because we have been made alive by God. We have been born again. We don't do this in order for us to be saved, but because we have been saved. Now, it's possible that some people, when they hear what I just said, may feel discouraged. If my lifestyle is supposed to be marked by godly behavior, but I still struggle with sin, and I hear other people's testimonies, and so many of them seem to have experienced a drastic change in their lives, what does that say about me? Am I actually saved? We can succumb to this desire to compare ourselves and how God's working in our lives with other people, which then leads back to a self-autonomous mindset, trying to make sure that we're doing good works so that we can feel assured about our salvation. I've been in that place before, and I've had those thoughts. We can get so caught up in comparing ourselves to others, looking at our own failures with sin, that we forget to trust in God. This verse says that the good works that we are to walk in, God prepared beforehand. Each person's journey of sanctification is going to be different. We need to have faith that just like he made us alive when we were dead, we can trust in what Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may have heard of a man named John Newton. In his early life, John worked on a ship as a slave trader in the 18th century and openly mocked religion. Yet on one fateful day in 1748, there was an especially violent storm at sea. It was so violent that it brought John to his knees and he pleaded to God to save him and his crew. As the story goes, after pleading with God, he was relieved on deck by another crew member. Within mere minutes, the storm increased its rage and killed the crew member that had just replaced him. John Newton and the rest of his crew survived. That event marked John Newton's conversion, and he set that day aside each year for a time of humiliation, prayer, and praise. And so after he was converted, 
Was there an immediate change in him where his lifestyle was now marked by godly behavior? Well, for the next six years, he continued as a slave trader. In fact, according to him, the only sin he was able to rid himself of during this initial time was profanity. But when he retired from that life, he eventually became a minister and an advocate for the end of the slave trade. John Newton made a huge impact on a man by the name of William Wilberforce, the British politician who helped end his country's slave trade and eventually led to the release of over 800,000 slaves. But the thing that John Newton is probably most known for is a hymn that he wrote to coincide with a New Year's sermon he made on January 1st, 1773. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So yes, our response to God's amazing work of grace is making us alive when we were dead in our sins, is obedience to God and his word. But this obedience comes not from us trying to earn God's favor, but it's motivated out of the love we have for him because of what he's done for us. So I invite you to look at the motivation of why you do the things you do. God should be reaching into every aspect of your lives. When you go to your job every day, are you thinking about how you can be a testament to for God through your work? Do you approach all of your duties, even the annoying, menial tasks, with a cheerful attitude? Do you always treat your boss and superiors with respect, even though you may not feel like they deserve it? If you're in school, are you thinking about how you can glorify God through your studies? As Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. In whatever you do, whether that's washing the dishes, interacting with that co-worker that gets under your skin, honoring your parents, be motivated by Christ. An easy place to start is with your New Year's resolutions. If one of your resolutions was to get in shape, are you doing that for vanity and to honor yourself? Or because you want to honor God with your body. If you've resolved to read the Bible every day, is it because that's what you're supposed to do to be a good Christian? Or because of your love for God and the fact that when you love someone, you want to know everything about them? As we go about our lives in this new year, let's not put our hope in our own ability to change. Let's instead put our faith in Christ, preach the truths of the gospel to ourselves, and let it be the motivation for everything that we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything you do. Lord, we are undeserving. There's nothing that we bring to the table, Lord, and it's all because of your grace, your love, your mercy. And Lord, we just ask that you would set this on our hearts, that we, we would be motivated by your love for us, that we could glorify you in everything we do. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.